Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. We're going to be spending some time, some time in the book of Joel. So if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn, turn them on or open them, whatever your, your Bible is. And um, we're going to start, we're going to be uh, seeing or visiting the, the chap- chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And... Uh, we, we are on a series in the, on the book of Joel. It, we're going to spend four weeks. We started last week, so this is our second week. And uh, we took a break from our uh, series in the book of Acts, and we'll, we'll resume that after the summer with Pastor Bill. And uh, we are uh, looking at this, this book. It's a small book, the book of Joel. And, uh, but it's, it's packed with the gospel. I, I did not anticipate how much of the gospel was going to be in this book. I, I've read this book before uh, as my personal reading time, and I just kind of read it in passing. and never really stopped uh, so much to actually dive into it. And, and it's a book that actually explodes with the gospel everywhere, and it's amazing. And I have titled this, this book series uh, with the name of The Hope of Repentance, because I believe that uh, the ultimate theme or the ultimate, ultimate themes of this book are are the ugliness of our sin and, and destruction that comes as a consequence of our sin. But it also highlights the hope we have in, in turning to God and, and how good God is and, and how merciful He is. And that's actually what we're going to see today. And um, last week, we, I gave a little bit of, of the information of the book, our context and we don't really know much about the book. We don't, we don't know when the book was written. We don't know the setting. We don't even know exactly who the target audience is. Specifically, we know it's the people of God, but that's all we know. And, and some scholars actually see this as a benefit rather than a problem or something that we're missing. They, they say that the, the fact that we don't have much information about Joel makes its message timeless and, and it can be applied and repeated in any place or in any age. So today we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to go ahead and pray. And then we're going to read our text. Lord Jesus, thank you. We come before you this morning, eager to hear your voice. And Lord, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit will come and just open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, so that we can see your truth. Just, just like Andrew said this morning, you, you, don't, you don't need this, but we do this because we are stating your truth and we need your truth. And Lord, I pray that today we will be confronted and comforted by your word. And I pray that we will also be transformed and, and, and we will take this truth to the world so that people can know you better. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and read our text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. 
a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the, top of the mount, on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like, like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in, it, in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb upon the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest the minister of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. And by word among the nations, why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> I want to tell you a story that I, I think is, has something to do with what, what we see in the text. I, uh, I'm from Mexico, from Mexico City specifically, and when I was six years old, and I remember this clearly, I don't have many memories of my childhood. I don't know why. I, I really don't retain a lot of memories. I, I feel like my brain says, if it's not important, then just get rid of it. But I remember this day. It was September the 19th in 1985. I was six years old. Um, I'm 40 now, so you can make the, do the math. And um, that morning, it was about 7 in the morning, and I was going into first grade. It was one of the first days of school. It was September, or the first few weeks. And an earthquake of 8.1 magnitude, if you know the Richter scale, it's, this is a pretty huge um, earthquake. 8.1 hit Mexico City. And it nearly destroyed like a quarter of the city. About 10,000 people died. I remember just my parents grabbing me 
And walking out of the house, I remember the garage, uh, small garage we had. We had a small car, and everything was moving, and I didn't know what, what was happening. My mom tried to, like, grab the car, but literally everything is moving, everything. And I'm like, what is happening? This is my first memory of an earthquake. We, we left the house, we walked into the street, and everyone was outside in the street. There was lines of people right in the middle of the street, and everybody was just quiet. And there was this eeriness about the moment. You, you, could, you couldn't hear anything. I mean, you could hear a bunch of things, but there was like this weird silence. And then you would just hear cracking. And then you, you, like you would feel the, 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 the floor moving under you and the trees. And it was just crazy. I remember that. It was, it was devastating. It marked me. And then 32 years later, and this is another eerie thing. This is crazy. 32 years later, on the exact same day... September the 19th, but this time it's 2017, my son, Joel, is six years old, the same age I was, and on the same day, another earthquake, but this is 7.2, 7 it's not as big, hits Mexico City as well. This, this happened two years ago. But there was something different apart from the fact that it was a little, a little um, less hard, if you want to say it that way. Many people did not die. They only, we only had uh, like about 500 people who died and just a few buildings that collapsed and a few others that were damaged. But the reason that there was a difference this time is that we, had, we now have in Mexico City an alarm system. We, have a, we didn't have that in Mexico in, in 1985. You just felt everything moving and you just ran as, as soon as possible. And now we have an alarm in the whole city that gives you about 50 seconds, depending on where the earthquake originated, about 50 to 40 seconds, so you can get out of your, of your house. So this, this was established when we moved to Mexico. We moved to Mexico in 2014. For, for all of you who don't know, I moved to Mexico, sent by Redemption Hill to plant a church. So when I arrived in Mexico City in 2014, this system was already in place. And my family and I were traumatized by the alarm. Because this alarm sounds every time a, an earthquake hits Mexico City that is a, a, a higher than 4.5. So basically, any earthquake in Mexico City that's below 4.5, we don't even care about. Because it, it, they happen so often that we don't even pay attention to them. And the alarm doesn't really sound. But if it goes over 4.5, it sounds. And it, it sounds at any time. In the middle of the night, during the day, during lunch, early in the morning, at any time. We were traumatized. Because after the 2017 earthquake hit, everybody freaked out about the alarm. After the earthquake, people were so scared of the alarm, just by the sound of the alarm, that there were, there were some cases of people jumping off buildings just, by, just when they listened to the alarm. They just panicked. People had panic attacks, and even some people had heart attacks because of the, of, of the alarm. There was, there was a, an initiative to introduce a legislation that would change the sound of the alarm because it was creating people, or it was creating panic amongst the people in Mexico City. It never happened. I personally don't think it made sense. The point of the alarm was to scare you. That's the point. It actually, if, if it's scaring you, it, it's, it's doing its job. Now, the level of how much you get scared, that's a different issue. But before that, I remember before 2017, when we arrived in 2014, 
We heard these alarms so many times, we started to not even paying attention to it. We slept through some of these alarms many times. Sometimes we would like feel the, the whole thing moving and we would actually walk out and you would see maybe a few of your neighbors out. Some people would, and, and we did this too. We took our time. We put our, you know, hands or whatever you were. If it was cold, you would grab a jacket. But then after the 2017 earthquake, every alarm after that, everybody was out on the street. People were coming out with just a blanket with just people in towels. Some people didn't care, and people were just walking out in like underwear. It was everybody. And the reason why everybody started doing this is because what we expected to happen actually happened. For a long time, we were just like confident. We were like, oh, it's, I know it's gonna happen, but it hasn't happened in 32 years, so who cares? And we just kinda grew numb to the alarm. And I think this is what's happening today in our text. If you look at the first, the first uh, verse of the, book, uh, of the second chapter of the book of Joel, this is what Joel is doing. He's actually saying to the people, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. And he's actually saying that the purpose of what Joel is saying is to scare the people. The, the, Verse 1 says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? Why is Joel sounding an alarm or asking people to sound an alarm? Because the day of the Lord is coming. God is saying to the people, something is going to happen. Pay attention. Listen up. Blow a, a trumpet. Tell people something is going to happen. The day of the Lord is happening. And what we're about to see, or what we just read in chapter 2, is what's happening is that Joel is actually taking what happened in chapter 1, which was an invasion of the locust, a, a, a huge event, a horrible event that left a famine in the land. And he's utilizing that to say what, what happened to you could happen again. God, uh, through, the, through the prophet Joel, is using the event of the locust that we talked about last week to illustrate the day of the Lord that is near. This is what, the, what, what chapter, one, chapter 2 verse 1 says. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. This day of the Lord will come as a judgment to his people. So I don't know, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've already, you've already probably heard of this day of the Lord. Have you heard that before? The day of the Lord? What does that mean? What does the day of the Lord mean? Well, there's no better place to talk about the day of the Lord than this book, the book of Joel. There's 19 times when, where the day of the Lord is mentioned in the Old Testament and five of them happen here in the book of Joel, which makes it the best place to talk about this. So the day of the Lord refers to a specific event that belongs to the Lord. A day that belongs to the Lord, meaning that it, this is a day that He is authoring, He is causing, He is the one who creates it. And it is a day in which God reveals His character in a very strong way. So it is a specific day that God take, takes credit for, and it's a day where He reveals His character in a very strong way to His people. 
So some of the characteristics that God reveals in the day of the Lord are his holiness, his wrath, his justice, his power, his mercy, and his love. And the day of the Lord could be an event in the past or in the future or something that is happening in the moment. Actually, in, verse, in chapter 1, it's an event that passed. We see that in verse, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. And at the end of chapter 2, Joel is actually saying that the day of the Lord is coming and he's referring to an event that will happen thousands of years later. And it's actually referring to Jesus' coming on Pentecost. And we will see this in, in the following week. Peter actually interprets that for us in Acts chapter 2. But ultimately, the purpose of the day of the Lord is to point us, remind us of a final day, which is the day of the Lord. A final day in which God will separate the just and the unjust and usher eternity for us. So the, the, the day of the Lord is something that could happen now, happened before, could happen in the future. But it ultimately points to an eschatological event that refers to the end. But in our text today, the day of the Lord is a reference to a future event that is coming at any time. And Joel is asking, saying to people, wake up, be alert, something could happen. Another interesting characteristic of the day of the Lord is that it usually creates fear in people. In verse 115, Joel actually says this is a day of destruction. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 2 says this is a day of darkness and gloom. 2.11 says this is a great, a great and awesome day. And it actually asks who can endure it. It's a rhetorical question that basically we can answer nobody. Verse 2.31 says this is a great and awesome day. Verses, verse 3.14 says a day of decision. And this is the kind of day that Joel is talking about. A day of destruction that is coming to the people, and he is warning them about this. So how do we see in this chapter that what, what Joel is warning the people is something that God is about to do? We see this in chapter 2, verse 11. Read, read this with me. It says, the Lord utters his voice before what? His army. For his camp is exceedingly great. Remember that he's illustrating the locust as his army for what's going to come. And he's actually saying, this is my army. This is God's army. He is uttering his voice before his army. And then he says, he who executes his word is powerful. This army is executing God's word. For the day of the Lord is great and awesome. So what we see in this chapter, before I continue, is... If we could paraphrase this, is that this horrible thing happened to you, Israel, or people of God. It, it, was, it was horrible. It, had, it was of historic dimensions. And just feel the pain. This is what we talked about last week. Lament in community and run to God because he alone is our hope in the midst of pain. And then he's, he transitions and he says, wake up, be alert, because just like this horrible event happened in the past... It could happen again, and God is going to send another disaster again because of your sin. And 
the difference between this chapter and chapter 1 is that in chapter 1, we do not see the reason why God is sending or God allowed this a catastrophe to happen to the people. There's no mention of sin. It just, it just says it's something that happened. But on this chapter, we actually do see that this is coming because of people's sin. Now, what sin are we talking about? If you read, if you read with me, there is no mention of a specific sin. And that's one more thing that we don't know about the book of Joel. We don't know why this is coming to people. Usually, if you remember the Old Testament, it would be because they married people from other nations. Or because they were worshiping other gods. Or because they did not follow God's instruction. That's why God usually judged his people. But in this, in this instance, we don't see why. So how do we know it is because of sin that God is sending this? Because there is a clear call to repentance. If you look at verse 12 and 13, you will see that Joel is asking the people, he's commanding the people to return to God. God is saying, return to me with all your heart. Verse 13 says, return to the Lord your God. We see that there is a call to return to God. Why is God sending judgment to his people? Because of their sin. Because this is how God responds to sin. And this is something that we see explicitly throughout the Bible. And this is not very popular to, to talk about today. We, we don't want to talk about how God, respo God responds to sin. We usually would like to just hear that God loves us all and that he's really good. And he is. He's gracious. But he's also a judge, and he's just. And God deals with our sin and everybody's sin in a specific way. And one of these ways is through judgment. So let me elaborate on this. Why is it that God responds to sin in such a harsh way? Well, one of the reasons is because God cannot be in the same place with sin. God is so holy, so perfect, that he cannot even be close to sin. So sin, because of its nature, separates itself from God. And at the same time, God separates himself from sin. This is what we see happening in Genesis 3. This is how God reacted to the original sin, to Adam and Eve's sin. God separated Adam and Eve from the, from the garden And he also separated himself from them. Because sin causes us to abandon God. And simultaneously, God separates himself from us. Sin creates separation. Sin creates death. Why? Why does it create death? Because we're separating from life. Every time we sin, we're taking a step back from life. Who is life? Who is the origin of life? Is God himself. So every time we sin, we're walking away from life. And that's what God told Adam and Eve. If you sin, you're going to die. Why? Because you're, you're walking away from the source of your life. And this is what happened to humanity. This is what happens to us. 
When we sin, we are separated from God. We separate ourselves, and God separates from us, and we die spiritually and physically. And when it comes to physical death, we don't immediately die. Why? Because there's still some life in us because of his grace. I, I, I like to use the example of a branch or a flower. When you go to the store and you see these beautiful flowers that you buy for people, they're not death. They're just about to die, right? And what, what do we do? We, we try to mimic what, where they come from. We put them in water because that's their source of life. But ultimately, they have been taken, they have been separated, ripped off from their source of life. And they're just waiting to die. They're beautiful, like some of us. But the reality is that without the source of life, we are just waiting to die. And that's what happens to humans when they sin. We are separated from God. And this, this has a bigger implication. The Bible usually refers to something that we call hell as a second death. Or actually sometimes it calls it death. Why? Because this is the ultimate separation from God. This is eternal separation from God. Hell is nothing else than the separation of humans from God absolutely. And the reason why the Bible talks about hell, hell as something so horrible is because in, on this earth, on this earth, we can still feel and taste a little bit of love and a little bit of uh, gratitude and a little bit of friendship and a little bit of joy. We, we, can, we can still feel that because God is present. Because of God's grace, he, can, uh, he allows us to feel love and friendship and compassion and, and ha have good things on this earth. But if your decision is to reject God, then... Your decision will lead you to your desire. Separation from God eternally. And the reason why this is so horrible is because God is a source of joy. God is a source of peace. God is a source of love. God is, God is a source of everything good. And hell is absolute separation from, th from that. So in hell, we'll suffer like we've never suffered before because there are no traces of friendship. In hell, there are no traces of love, no traces of anything good. Everything in that place is just totally bad, like we've never, ever experienced it before. And that's why hell is something that God doesn't want for us. That's why he's sounding the alarm. That's why he's telling the people, this day, this judgment is coming because you're, you're walking towards it. Wake up. Sin separates us from God, separates us from each other as well. The reason why we fight and we envy and we, we war is because of sin. Sin broke everything good that God had for us. And the Bible diagnoses humanity as sinners. When we say we are sinners, we're not saying you're the ho most horrible person in the world. No, we're actually recognizing who we are as a group, as a, as, as, as a race. 
We are the human race and we are all sinners. And Romans 3.23 actually tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 actually tells us the wages of sin is death. Why? Because we're separating ourselves from life. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God deals with sin responding in judgment because it creates separation. Because he's warning us. He's trying to discipline us. So we could say that in chapter 2, God is warning all of us along with his people of the consequences of sin. God is saying, wake up. You're going in the wrong direction and it's going to cause pain. And I'm going to allow pain in your life so that you can react and wake up. Sin brings pain. Sin brings suffering. And we are all sinners. And sin is basically the idea of me taking my own life and disregarding God. That's the essence of sin. It's saying, God, thank you for your suggestions, but I'm going to do what I want. Thank you for everything that you have commanded me to do, but you know what? I know better than you. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's the essence of sin. It's selfishness. It's, it's just thinking about ourselves. It's, um, it's basically the deification. It's, it's, it's putting ourselves in the place of God. It's removing God out of his throne and making ourselves our own gods. And the reason, a, a good way to see how, how selfish and how sinner, sinners we are is by just realizing how much we think about ourselves. And how we prioritize ourselves. And this happens... Since we are little. All my kids have been a proof of how sinful we are to me. One of the first words my kids learned, apart from ice cream, was mine. And if you're a parent, you, you can probably attest to this. One of the first words kids learn is mine. And my kids actually said it in Spanish, it's mio. But they go around grabbing people's stuff and they say, mio. And then if you don't give it to them, they cry and they demand it. And they fight because it's theirs. Because we are sinners and we, we want everything for us. We prioritize ourselves and we just disregard others and mostly God. This is why it's so hard to love our neighbor. This is why it's so hard to love God. Because doing all these things means putting others first. Sin prevents us from being close to God and others. And in this case, the day of the Lord comes as a judgment because of people's sin. And God is warning them. God doesn't want us to suffer. He's saying, this day is coming. Wake up. Sound an alarm. And then he goes on to describe how horrible this will be paralleling or illustrating from what happened in chapter 1. But what is it that God wants us to do in the midst of all this? It's very clear. He's asking us to repent because repentance should be our response to sin. God's response to sin is judgment. But our repentance to sin should be, our response to sin should be repentance. Look at verse 12. Yet now, 
declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord. I think that this is clear for the people in that time, but it's also something that we can do today. We need, to, we need to realize that God is warning us and that our sin is going to cause pain in our lives. And God is saying, hey, wake up. I don't want you to suffer. Repent. And Joel is actually saying, how should we repent? Joel is giving us some things that are important for us to do as we repent. But I just want to say before that repentance is recognizing that our sin has offended God and we make the necessary changes in order to go back to him. Some of the things repentance is not is repentance is not only something you say. Repentance is not only something you feel. Repentance is not, it's not even only something you do. Repentance includes, involves all of these things. And Joel is actually giving us a few tips on how to repent. The first thing we see in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 12, is that Joel is saying, repent genuinely. With all your heart, not lightly, not casually, but wholeheartedly. Repent sacrificially. He's calling us to fast, give up something, let go of that which is leading you to sin. Abstain from something. That's what fasting is, right? He's also calling us to, to repent with sadness. Weeping and mourning is part of sadness. Our signs of what we call contrition. Sadness because we offended God. Not just sad because of the consequences of our sins. And then he calls us. And I want to focus my, my energy on this. Is he calls us to a deeper and more radical way of repenting. Which is rending your heart and not your garment. Rending Ripping off your heart and not just your clothes. It's, Joel is asking us not to just repent on the outside. Not just focus on what we do. But actually he's calling us for a deep conviction of our sin and radical change. And this is important because Joel is writing to the Jews and he's actually telling the Jews to do some things that they were used to doing. If you're familiar with the Jews... They, they used to have rituals for everything. And one of the rituals was for repentance. And everything that Joel just said was part of that ritual. Weep. Mourn. Put on sackcloth. He mentioned that in, in chapter 1. Tear your clothes. All that is something that they used to do. But Joel is saying, don't focus on the outside. Are you deeply deeply convicted of your sin and I think that God is calling us to do the same today and the reason why we are God is calling us to, to go back to himself even though we have offended him is because he is the only one that will give us grace in the midst of our sin think about this do you like other people's sin How do people react to your sin? Isn't it true that even though we know we are not perfect, we are probably the least merciful towards others who are not perfect as well? How do they react at your job when you sin? 
How, do, how, do you, how, how do you, does your friend react to your sin? The reality is that if we sin and if we know we are sinners and we are just constantly aware of our sin and we don't turn to God, we're, we're actually missing the point. Because he is the only one who never reacts just like everyone else reacts to our sin. And Joel is actually telling us that. He's saying, return to God. Rend your hearts. Fast. Weep. Yes. But why? Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Joel is calling us to return to God after we have offended God because he is the only one who can treat us in a way that we do not deserve. But we actually do the opposite. As people, we do the opposite. We sin, we offend God, and we run from God. Some of us stop going to church. Some of us just get out of community. We isolate ourselves, and then we think that somehow others will treat us better because of our sin. Think about this. We don't even treat ourselves better because of our sins. Some of the harshest things I have ever said or I, I, I've heard are from myself. I am probably the harshest person towards myself than anyone else. I don't even tolerate sometimes how I am or my, my shortcomings. But for some reason, I keep turning to Chewy every time I sin, and that makes no sense. Joel is saying, you offended God, repent and go towards him. Because he's the only one who is slow to anger, gracious, and merciful. And listen to this. He's abounding in steadfast love. He has plenty of a love that never ends and never moves. His love is steadfast. It's firm. It will never end. He is the only one who has plenty to give us. Your friend, your job, your teacher... They might, they might give you one, two, three chances. But let me tell you, they're going to get tired very soon of your sin. Even your wife and your husband or your kids. And Joel is saying, come to the only one who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I had a discussion with my wife the other day because I have four kids and, and they get on my nerves really quick. It's like they synchronize themselves to annoy me all together at the worst moments. Literally, they're just waiting for the moment where I'm mostly tense to start yelling or fighting. And I'm just like, Ooh. like I can feel my anger just like rising. And then I'm like trying not to yell or say something to them. And, 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 and the other day, my, my son, I mean, the older they get, the worse it gets. My oldest son is Joel. He, he's uh, almost eight years old. And he, I said, just go to your room and stop talking because he kept just talking. And then he responded. He talked back at me. And I remember I just got up. And my wife said, is that how God reacts to you? My wife is amazing, right? She chose the best moment to say that. But it convicted me. It convicted me because I react to people I love in a very 
quick to anger way. And I, I, I wanted to punish and discipline my son because, because he was being rude in the worst moment. And he didn't realize how the, all the other kids were being rude and, and, and noisy. And I just reacted like this. I'm, I'm his dad. I'm supposed to be the guy that actually loves him the most. I care for him. I feed him. I clothe him. I, I was in the hospital with him a week ago. And I was not slow to anger. I was not merciful. I was not gracious. And my wife pointed out the fact that that is exactly how God does not treat us. And it's true. So it makes no sense for us not to repent and go back to God. Because he is the only one that will treat us in a way that we do not deserve. Dr. Tony Evans says the following when talking about repentance. He says, repentance is the master key for whatever your scenarios are today. Opening the door based on God's prerogative to reversing, limiting, canceling, or giving you the capacity to handle consequences. That is why almost every time you see the word repentance connected to the word return, he tells you what he's going to do for you if you do it. This is what's happening here. God is saying, return and repent and come to me. And guess what? If you continue to read in verse 14, he says, and I will bless you. I will provide for you. If we repent, we are opening the door to God for God to relent. And instead of destruction, he's going to bring blessing and provision to us. That's what verse 14 is saying. Who knows? Whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. God is patient. Even though he deals with our sin and judgment, he's patient. He's warning these people. He's waiting for them to repent. And this is exactly what the apostle Peter tells us later. He says, in, in talking about the day of the Lord again, in 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, what? Repentance. Repentance is what God wants from us. This is the way we should react, respond to our sin. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He's patiently waiting for us. And the best part of the whole thing is that God has already showed his grace and mercy and love to us by providing the biggest and best blessing he could ever give us. And that is his son, Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to save us from his sin. Jesus is the evidence of God's slowness to anger, abounding in grace and steadfast love and how merciful he is. If you ever doubt that God is the, all of these things, just look to the cross and you'll see it in full display. And this is, this is, this is crazy, but maybe unknowingly, the prophet Joel is asking the people to pray a specific prayer at the end of this text that actually talks about Jesus. 
And I never saw it before. If you, if you read verse 17, it reads like this. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the minister of the Lord, weep and say. Look at this prayer. This is what, what Joel is asking the people to pray. And the ministers, spare, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach. And you know what God's answer to that prayer is? Yes. And the response of that is in Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has already answered this prayer for us in Jesus Christ. He spared us by not sparing his son. He gave his son up for us so that we could have eternal life. And if you're not a Christian today, this is something that is available to you. And there's nothing you need to do to earn it. Has been already given to you by grace. All we need to do is repent and receive God's grace in Jesus Christ. So I want to, I want to finish by, by saying. If we're struggling with sin, it's not an if. We are all struggling with sin, we should repent and go to God. Let's stop running from God and let's start going towards God. The worst thing we can do as Christians, even as non-Christians, is to run away from God in search of forgiveness or love. The only source of abundant love is Jesus Christ. He came down to earth. He took our place. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. And he was nailed to a cross because of our sin. And now, because of Christ, if you have received Christ, if you belong to Christ, when you stand before the judgment of God, God sees his son and he sees you as if you have never ever sinned and you are white as snow because you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's what we get every time we repent and we go back to God. He's not a Santa Claus with a list. Just making sure that you get punishment for everything you do. He's definitely not like Chewy who gets easily angered by how annoying it is that we keep sinning and sinning. No. We have a God who is patient and slow to anger and is always waiting for us with his arms wide open. That's the kind of God we have. So I say it again. The judgment of God is coming. Repent and come to God. Because in him, there is plenty of love for all of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Because you do not treat us according to our sins. Lord, thank you because you are a good God, a gracious God. Thank you because in you, we can find hope. In you, we find love. In you, we find forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that today you will help us stop running away from you.
but rather come to you. Lord, I pray that through your spirit today, we will feel the greatness of your love and the greatness of your patience. And we will be moved to come to you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.